and welcome to The Staffing Show, the only podcast that delivers tools, tips, and tactics from the staffing and recruiting industry's top executives and thought leaders. Are you a healthcare staffing firm looking to reduce credential support? Do you need to get candidates on the job faster? Are your recruiters bogged down by manual onboarding, compliance, and credentialing processes? Meet ABLE. ABLE offers healthcare staffing firms end-to-end candidate intake, credentialing, and onboarding. When combined with pre-integrated ATS systems or ABLE Unify, we're delivering a seamless experience across your tech stack for physicians, nurses, and allied health staffing, as well as simplified workflows for recruiters and credentialing teams. Start managing the collection and maintenance of candidate credentials in one platform and on any device with natively integrated remote I-9 and E-Verify. To learn more, visit ableteams.com slash healthcare. Hello, everyone, and thank you again for joining us for another episode of The Staffing Show. Super excited to be joined by Joe Mullins today. Joe Mullins has been building companies and careers since 1989. He founded and is chairman and CEO of the Mullins Group, the world's leading search firm in the medical device industry. Mullins Group is responsible for more than 7,000 successful searches with more than 600 companies in the medical device industry. His clients are multi-billion dollar companies like Johnson & Johnson, Google, Medtronic, Abbott, and Siemens, as well as the emerging startup companies that are bringing the futuristic technologies like surgical robotics, telerobotics, artificial intelligence, and deep learning to the market. Joe was recently appointed Chief Visionary Officer of MRI Networks, the third largest executive recruitment firm with 400 offices worldwide. He is also President and CEO of Dragonfly Stories, which is the production company behind the docuseries True Future, of which he is the host and producer. Joe is also the founder of the media platform of TMG360, a medtech news and opinion website. And Joe has an engineering degree from the University of Dayton, Ohio. Quite an amazing background there, Joe. Super excited to have you on the show today. And I think we've got some really interesting topics to dig into. Today, we're going to be talking about the great resignation, the digital transformation, and some specific tactics on how you can grow your staffing agency faster and make sure you're doing the right things. So just kick things off. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got into staffing and recruiting? Yep. Great to be here. Thanks for the opportunity to share some thoughts with your audience. I graduated university in 84, went out, was an engineer, got my engineering degree, spent a few years as an engineer, realized that I wasn't set up for corporate. So got a couple side hustles. And one of them was the uh, fitness business. And I had purchased a couple of gyms on Long Island where I grew up and built them up, sold them off, made a nice profit and left the engineering world and spent a little time on a boat with a dog and then realized my brains was going to mush. I walked into a headhunter's office who was a friend of the family saying, you know, I got to get back to work. And after about two hours, he asked me if I ever thought about search. And at the point, like nobody thinks about search. Nobody went to school for search. Nobody got a degree in search, right? Usually everybody listening to this knows that you end up in search after a divorce or after you're fired or after, (laughs) right? (laughs) So I found my way into search in the conventional way, unplanned. And I asked Sebastian Lavolsi, who was the gentleman who I chatted with, what your top salesperson make last year? He told me, I said, I'm in. And so my <laughs> first day was December 4th, 1989. And then I opened up my own firm January of 1992, moved from Long Island, Woodbury, Long Island, down to Coral Gables, Florida, and opened up there. That is fantastic. And with that, I mean, your background, and I'm actually a little curious to know about what worked then 
that still works today that's critical. So I think we've been we're going to talk about the digital transformation and what you need to be doing next and new things you need to be adopting. But I'm also interested to know what are some of the tactics that you use then that are still key to your success today. Oh gosh, good question. So you know, without being too crunchy, this is the one that matters the most in search and anywhere else you apply it. Give, give, give without the expectation of expecting anything in return, but be damn well you're standing in plain sight when somebody needs something. And I think that's what search is about or staffing of any sort is you're a connector. You're always giving. You're never asking for something, you know, outright because people can smell it right away. So, you know, I still believe the philosophy is we try and facilitate decisions. We don't try and close. You always need to be the hardest working person in the room. The phone is still the most important thing, but it's moved a little further down the chain of execution in search today with the digital transition. I'm sure we'll go into that. And then establishing a subject matter expertise in whatever domain it is that you're going to dominate in. That's great advice. And with that, I imagine that's something that you implement with all of your team at the Molins Group. But why don't you tell us a little bit about what is the Molins Group? How many employees? What's your revenue and growth rate look like? Sure. So we are a permanent search firm to use the vernacular in the staffing industry. Our run rate this year is right around 12 million. We're a single office. We did that 12 million though with 10 recruiters. So the PDA, the per desk average in our office is, is well beyond industry standard. And we can dig into how we pull that off. But some of that has to do with super hard work, domination of an industry, medical device, health tech, med tech, really deep subject matter expertise that we teach within the organization. And then I would say that the digital transition, we have a full-time production facility, full-time production team. And we firmly believe that we have weaponized media in order to scale our efforts in the staffing industry by using that weaponized media as a distribution channel of proof of our subject matter expertise. That's amazing. And I love the per desk average. I've actually talked frequently with my team about the revenue per employee. And I remember back in the day, do you remember Craigslist used to be? Or of course. They, they, they were like one of the absolute top. <laughs> which of I would course. Uh, yeah, now with that, let me just say that, you know, a 10 desks or 11 desks, but we've got 28 employees. So I've got more people not on the phone than I've got on the phone. Okay. Dig into that a little bit. Tell me, how does it work? Has that been a KPI for your team? Or is that something that you personally have kind of put in place? So one of the things that's important is most staffing organizations are built as staffing firms. They're not built as companies that happen to be staffing firms. And what that means is if I walk into any staffing firm, do they reasonably have a true marketing department, not a recent college grad who's really good on Instagram, like a real (laughs) marketing department where you've got branding, you've got media, short, long form video, you've got short, long form copy, you've got experts on how to deploy on LinkedIn and a marketing department. And then media department. I mean, you don't have to overcook it like we have, but we've got, I think, the probably headcount on our production team is maybe eight people, nine people, and a 4,000 square foot studio. You can get a peek behind us, sort of, what that is. Um, That was a virtual... (laughs) That's yeah, a, that's <laughs> no, that's real. That's, that's great. Leah, well, go walk around back there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then we've got a business intelligence function, right? So most people just use a database. But you know, if you take Zoom info, you take LinkedIn, you take whatever it is you use, Bullhorn, and now you take that business intelligence and convert that into usable, actionable information 
at the hands of a search consultant, they can execute at a million dollar a year billing rate in aggregate. I've got $2 million billers and I've got $700,000 billers. So, but the average is across almost a million dollars a desk. That is pretty impressive. So, and have you used any going off target for where we're going to go with the great resignation? But have you dug into like traction EOS? Are you using any management frameworks or is kind of stuff that you built over time? It's all the stuff we built over time. We even have invested uh, substantial big six figures in our own custom database rather than using something off the shelf. Now, there's fine products on the shelf. I don't diss those. But historically, if you think about most staffing firms, what they do is they buy a software and then they try and have to bend their process to the software. Well, why wouldn't you look at your process, Six Sigma your process, and then customize a software to complement and amplify your processes after they've been thought through in-house. You know, the investment could be a buck fifty, two hundred thousand, but that is probably the best pound for pound dollar that you could make and longitudinally pays off easily in the first year you put that to work and everything after that is just amplifying efforts. That's great, great advice. And so kind of shifting gears a little bit, we're going to jump into the great resignation, but I also wanted to talk something that's probably going to come out of the conversation is about purpose and purpose-driven organizations and how that helps with engagement. And I was just wondering if you could share a little bit about kind of Mullings Group and what you kind of see as the purpose behind your organization. Gosh, the purpose in our organization, I think it's probably, you know, the philosophies we live by is like who you're in the foxhole with really matters, right? Who's got your six, your nine? You know that we deploy empathy, but we also have that run right up alongside accountability. I think empathy by itself is an enabling behavior that people can't but help take advantage of. But when you can deploy empathy at scale and align it with accountability, is I'll give you room to breathe. I'll give you understanding. Having said that, I'm also going to hold you accountable for the commitments you make to myself, yourself, and the team. We're also interested here in very little to do with your comfort, more to do with your personal and professional development. And it's hard to have those sort of live together. But over time, you learn to become fulfilled. And that is hard for some people because people chase happiness. And happiness to me is a weak word and it's fleeting. But fulfillment, if you drive your purpose around sort of personal and professional development, it will steady you during your toughest times And it isn't as sort of fleeting as happiness is. Happiness is sort of like, and it's gone. So I think those are what set the culture here. With that, you've also, I know we talked briefly about how you're kind of hiring people differently and making sure that you have the right people in the right seats. Can you explain a little bit more about that as well? Sure. So, you know, historically, and myself was guilty of it in the early days, the guy who brought me up is a great guy in search. Well, one of them, Gary Williams. And we used to pay draw for what we call beer and cigarette money, right? So you'd get like a 24... When I started in in 92, it was a $24,000 draw. Your philosophy was never pay the person enough money to be comfortable. So they were (laughs) driven by hitting their quota. Yeah, And that could be the reason why the staffing industry has had a revolving door in it for so many years. So, you know, a few years ago, we massively shifted our mindset. We sat down and said, okay, what are the important characteristics and qualities of a good teammate? And we know it's IQ because you have to have a level of intelligence in our business because you've got to quickly process, you've got to see patterns, you've got to extrapolate potential solutions. And the smarter a person is, the quicker they can get to an offering of solutions on the phone. Then you need this massive 
need for curiosity. Like everybody who comes to work at your firm needs to be curious about what it is they're recruiting on. Because if they're not, they'll get bored. They almost have to have money be the secondary driver. And then you have to have conscientiousness because you want somebody who cares, who pays attention to detail, and also is incredibly well organized. You can't get all that for beer and cigarette money. So we decided that our draws will run anywhere in the last year between eighty dollars and $120,000 wow. that we guarantee in your first year, that's what you'll get. And here's the reason why is, first of all, you get a better shot at a better athlete right out of the gate. And for those that are listening to this show, you know how disheartening it is for your bullpen as well as yourself. And if you have a training function, that watching those people who are not smart enough, not curious enough, not driven enough, they show up because they're at a crosswords in their life. And you should never want to hire somebody who's willing to take a $50,000 draw for your company if you really care about your customers. So we hire best athlete and we guarantee them that income in the first year because we want them to concentrate on becoming great and not going home at night staring at the ceiling or talking to their sig other of how they're going to make the rent, the car payment, or what it is coming down the line. But with that also, our hiring process is incredibly severe. I want to dig into that as well as we kind of talk about the great resignation, and which I just came across a stat the other day that was like, August, there was a record-breaking 4.3 million Americans who quit their jobs. I don't know what the date on this was, but a Gallup analyst had a stat that 48% of our current population is actively looking, searching, or watching for job opportunities right now, which is scary for any business and also valuable for search and staffing agencies right now. I know all the staffing agencies I talk to have more job owners than they know what to do with. I would like to talk about how, one, what's your retention been like through this great resignation with what you have in place? Sounds like you've got a good model. And then two, how that's impacting your business and how you think, see things going forward. So the great resignation is interesting. You know, we've had these different levels of employment and unemployment over the years. There's a category going on right now. So let's eliminate maybe the catalyst for this of the COVID and the pandemic since February 2020, March 2020, depending on when you want to work the timeline. What's interesting about people right now coming out of the pandemic is people used to switch jobs to be happy right? They weren't happy in their current job. Right now, people think they can be happier in other jobs. That's an interesting dynamic that's going on. So I'm switching jobs because I'm not happy. That's cool. That was before the pandemic. Now people are reevaluating certain qualities in their life and arrangements in their life and say, I'm happy, but I think I can be happier. And they're willing to bet on that. And I do think there's going to be a slingshot effect on that. To what effect I don't know, but I sort of look at it like those old plastic rulers that we had in school. I don't know if you remember them. You have to pull. Yeah. You put the plastic ruler in front of you, in front of your face, and you pull it back and you go, well, it's going well right now, but then you let go of that ruler and it comes flying back and snaps you in the head. <laughs> I, think, I think that's what we're going to see socially over the next 24 to 36 months with the WFX arrangement, with people being so laissez-faire about looking at new jobs. I think that the recent entrance into the market, the people who are between one and four years are going to suffer from a mentoring issue. And I think if you're in a job that you're not looking to rapidly step up from a promotability standpoint, and it's not driven by sales, I think there's going to be some headwinds in that if you choose to be in a WFX. It's human nature social. Right. That's not a popular thing to say, but 
I think there's going to be some impacts there on individuals. Yeah, and you brought up WFX there, and I've heard in a couple of your other podcasts so the work from anywhere concept, which I don't know if our listeners have heard. So if you could just kind of dig into a little bit of what WFX is versus remote work and kind of how you see the difference there and why that's important. Sure. So the WFX concept came up because I'm not working in an office. So why should you care where I am? So work from home is what originally everybody came out with. And as I've mentioned before, you know, this pandemic came on us in a matter of a couple of days. We went from full in office for those that were in office to out of office. And to me, it was a throat punch. And so if you think that our immediate response to a WFX setup was the best one we could have conjured up in a three-day period, (laughs) you don't have any sense about human nature nor business principles. So not much has changed and corporations themselves don't quite know what to do right now. And they're sort of circling the boats and there's going to start to be the in-office and out-of-office cast system emerging. And then with that, the WFX is I'm waiting for the courts to be filled with discrimination cases by individuals who are WFXing and not getting promoted or missing out because they are WFX. And then the people who are in the office every day who choose to take a two-hour lunch and get the hairy eyeball when they walk back in, yet Bob, who's WFX, is out playing pickleball for three hours and nobody knows, (laughs) right? And then when does Bob's PTO come in? When Sally, who's in the office crunching it for 50 hours a week, has to go and ask for an afternoon off and she gets dinged for PTO. So HR's got their hands filled coming up over the next 24 months. Legal especially has their hands filled. The court systems are going to be ripe and just wait for the attorney commercials for have you been discriminated against because you're a WFX and the others are not. So I think we've got a cauldron ahead of us in that area. That's some great insights there. It's also kind of funny, the personal story, but my fiance's first day on our first job was the day that they shut all of the offices down in Denver as a data analyst. And she just had her first day in the office ever last week. And they're talking about, all right, well, are we going to come back? And they're saying maybe once a week, maybe Wednesdays, but everybody's still trying to figure it out. I don't think there is a formula. How do you kind of see or what best practices do you, what do you think is going to work in the long run for HR? in these situations. So first of all, (laughs) it's great news for the staffing industry because HR, and I love HR, don't get me wrong, but they weren't brought up as headhunters or staffing experts, right? Really good staffing experts are invasive apex predators and go after people who are currently in an employment situation. There's nobody in HR, in the history of HR, who is competent who has that as a default mechanism because that doesn't make you a caretaker for employees, right? So there are two types of people. There's apex predators, and then there's those who are taking care of the family members. And so while HR was under-resourced, never really appropriate for invasive recruiting, some of them are good at facilitation, and overworked, now we're going to be working into taking care of the internal team, the internal family, environmental health and safety, the WFX principles. It's all going to fall on their lap. They're going to have zero time to build staff. And so staffing firms right now should be doubling, tripling down on their internal headcount, building businesses around that, looking at contract, perm, RPO, and be building 
entire portfolios. And that's why you're seeing a lot of M&A work right now in the staffing industry, because the smart PE firms are rolling that up and staying ahead of where the industry is going. So you're going to look for full service, one vendor, and they're going to come in and address all those needs in an organization. Yeah. And that kind of leads me to the next question, which I think great insights again is like, how are you doing things differently right now? Has your operations changed significantly? And are there things that you kind of see as the future of work or future of search going forward? Sure. So, and we'll talk about that, but we made the big digital transition about five years ago in a major project we had with Johnson & Johnson and Google, and we can go into that. And we've doubled and tripled down on scaling out our subject matter expertise to the marketplace because you know, the really great candidates are not answering want ads. They're not even looking at want ads. What they're doing is they're working in their current job, their head is down, but they're aware that you're a voice of a category, whatever your specialty is, whether it's nursing, whether it's medical device, whether it's contract or construction, equipment, you know, supply chain, whatever your expertise in your office or desk is, you're already a subject matter expert, right? To the only though, to the 400 people you generally talk to all the time. You know, those 400 people constitute 80% of your desk. And you've spent five years, 10 years, 30 years in search. So you're an SME in your area of expertise, but only those 400 people see it. When you do a digital transition, you now via LinkedIn and other platforms can be speaking to 50 to 100,000 people a day with your knowledge of the industry. And now what you're doing is building your subject matter expertise up to a voice of a category where you're not even putting job postings up, but you're putting out, if you have a career in this industry, where's the industry going? What should you be keeping your eyes on? Here's what we're seeing in the market. Here's the disruptive and dislocating technologies going on due to everybody's digital transition, no matter what industry you're in. Here's what's going to be irrelevant in three years. So if you're in this, get the heck away from it. Here's where the venture money's going in, the private equity money's going in, the public money's going in. That's fuel for growth. And so you need to be talking about that on the LinkedIn platform. That's the platform for today. It may or may not be around. I don't think it's a meta going from Facebook, but it should be around for a number of years. And you should be doing that. And then the market will come to you. I will tell you, we have not made an outbound marketing call for JO in years. And I will say that most of our candidates are call-ins on JOs posted online because of our subject matter expertise and our domination from a voice of the industry perspective. That's amazing. And so I'm a big HubSpot guy and inbound marketer and you're doing inbound recruiting, which I love. <laughs> and that's a great... Do you have a content team that does that? Do you expect each of the recruiters or the search specialists to be learning and doing it themselves? How do you kind of facilitate that and make sure it's actually working? Yeah. In our firm, I pen every single thing that I write. Our KPIs in our organization are the production board, obviously. And then right behind that is number of followers on LinkedIn. And then each of our AEs, search consultants, in their first 90 days to 365 days, one of their primary KPIs is how many connections and followers do they have on LinkedIn? Wow. Yep. We don't check phone time. We don't check number of calls. We don't check any of that. We haven't for years. Our production is we've got a marketing team that consults for the AEs. We've got a production team that sets up the podcasts in our facilities for our AEs. But our AEs develop all of their own content themselves. They get insight and guidance from our VP of marketing, but they need to be the voice of who they are because that's the only way you can sustain that. And the only way 
that if I wake you up at two o'clock in the morning, you're the same person that if you write something at 5 p.m. And your market knows when it's not you speaking. And for all those firms that are hiring people to write for your big hitters, there are other ways to facilitate your big hitter communicating with the market. That's great advice and pretty awesome to see that you're holding your team to that KPI. That's the first time I've heard that and I absolutely love it. So you kind of talked a little bit about you know the digital transition and also how you built some of your own software, but are there any other tools or things within your tech stack that you'd be open to sharing with our audience? Sure. If you look at our tech stack, at the base of our tech stack, you've got Zoom Info, you've got Sales Navigator, you've got the database. I think Sales Navigator is an unbelievable tool. I came up with this strategy about two years ago called the 1042 strategy. You can go online on YouTube and look up 1042 Mullings. But using your database, using LinkedIn Sales Navigator, you can get in the inner circle of any A candidate or hiring manager that is on LinkedIn within less than 30 days and have them corresponding back and forth with you. So I won't go through that on here, but you could look it up on YouTube. So that's the base on our tech stack. The other side of our tech, as you move up on the tech stack, so that's your base, right? That's your back end. Your mid end is your content development. If you're a subject matter expert in your industry, we believe that reading five to seven articles that are specifically in your industry and then unwinding those headlines from a headhunter's perspective and sharing your insights with the market not on the article itself, but what the article means to careers relative to your specialization and your search desk or office, and then extrapolate that out as to, hey, if you're going to be around for three years or four years, you may want to be mindful of this trend in the industry, right? So that's where you move up on your stack, where you're pushing out content without asking for anything in return, and you're actually teaching people how to unwind headlines and look at them from a career perspective, not a consumer perspective. So does that make sense? It makes sense. I'm impressed by your insight on this. And I'm wondering, where did you learn all of that? How did you come up with all of these strategies? I think this is brilliant. Psychedelics. Um, <laughs> Fair. <laughs> no, you know, I'm a nerd. I think deeply about this industry. I love this industry. Look, it mixes science. It mixes human nature. It mixes communication at scale. And it's all about influencing people and helping people to be better. You know, the byline on my LinkedIn, on my webpage, joemullings.com, is build, teach, and inspire. And so that's at the basis of everything I do. And I think if you do that, that people will realize that you're there for the game, not for yourself, and then will start to trust you. And then once you have that trust, you've got to take care of it. And you've constantly got to be pushing the envelope doing what nobody else does because that's the only way that you get noticed. Yeah. I mean, you're hands down the only search firm that I've ever talked to that has the full PR. I mean, just looking at your background right now, you're doing something unique compared to most search firms that I talk with, which is pretty amazing. It's business development. So just so the listeners understand is, I'll give you an example. Somebody comes out with a new product in my industry. We do medical device. They come out with a really innovative product. I mean, just go look at my post this morning. A video. So great company from the UK has a technology that's very interesting. He was coming over to the US. He said, come into our studio. Let's do an interview. Did an interview. He's a brilliant guy. He's a doctor and also an entrepreneur. And we sit and we talk about his product. It's very innovative. It's somewhat dislocating to the market. I get content. He gets to spread the word on his company. He gets a lot of attention. He's got to hire. He calls me to hire because he knows what I'm talking about. I did him a solid. And we create a relationship. 
It's the best business development tool ever. That's why people started podcasting. That's the way people smuggle this in, right? Podcasting was nothing more than a smuggle on, hey, <laughs> let me feature your company and let's talk about it. And you do a decent podcast. The person gets excited. You now have this relationship and now they give you job orders. I mean, that was the original intention of podcasting and staffing. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. And with that, and kind of looking at like where things are now, good business development strategy now, where do you see, and we talked a little bit about this in different forms, but five years from now, 10 years from now, how do you see search changing? Oof. Well, I think you're going to start to see a bifurcation. I think there are people who are in search who do it for lifestyle. It's a really cool business. If you want to make 200, 300,000 a year, be a single desk office, have flexibility, work from your home, and you know, knock out 15 searches a year, you know, one and a half a month, keep the fee yourself, and have a nice little cottage business. It yeah. is beautiful there. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. And then there's going to be the organizations that are coming in and they are putting together a full stack solution. And this is where we're going. We are building the Ernst Young Price Waterhouse model for talent access. Everything we're building right now is indexing towards those big four started out as purely accounting companies. And then they become world-class consultants in areas and strategy. That's where you're going to see certain organizations leveling up to. And they're going to offer strategies to the big companies and say, your HR person should take care of the people in-house. And if I hire the right people, your retention is going to be higher. And the only way I can hire people is to make sure I get a hiring brand out there. I'm able to scale it. I'm able to deploy it to the entire community and the adjacent communities who don't even know they want a career in this area. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to ongoing engage with them and nurture relationships. And then I'm going to create a secure backend where they can go ahead and load their profiles in. It's password protected. And they can keep us up to date as to what's going on, what's not going on. And they can out loud show everything about us or they own that. And then they can decide who they give the pass key to for a very short time. And then that's where staffing is going. It's going to be branding, hiring brand, nurturing the relationships, getting the best person in the market, not the person who's available in a 30-day search window. And then that's going to, by an order of magnitude, bring in higher competitors, better players that are going to move certain brands way ahead of competitors. That's where search is going. Yeah, I've actually just done an IT staffing space to second that. I've seen some of the early adopters and first movers that are really looking at like, they're not talking about who do you need. They're talking about what problem are you trying to solve? And we'll take care of it from there. And more than that, you know what the number one question is for the firms that are going to get it? is who will I become when I go to work for you? Every single hiring strategy and every single message that goes out on behalf of our clients or the client himself should be, who will I become when I go to work in your firm? That's amazing. I love that. I'm going to kind of jump over to the next set of questions here. Keep thinking before. I love that piece of advice. I just wrote a note down to use that for my own personal hiring. <laughs> so yeah. I think that's great. What advice do you wish you were given before entering the staffing and recruiting industry? Open up your firm in a major metropolitan area if you really want to grow it to scale. Because we started down in Miami, Coral Gables, and that was it's a reasonable city. And then as we continue to move up north in Florida... I didn't have the population. Like I believe 
I've got a dozen of the most amazing search consultants on the phone and the balance of our organization are absolutely amazing high performers. If we had the ability, we could put 100 people in our organization within 12 months without even breathing heavy. Now, the WFX environment has given us that capability. We opened up in the UK. We've got an office in the UK. We've got a location in Cleveland blowing out. We've got one in Canada. We're in the middle of opening. But there is something about the energy in a critical mass all in the same building. So I think I would have said, take advantage of a geographic arbitrage as you build a firm if you want to build something that's going to change the world in staffing. Personally, that's what I wish I would have got. Great answer. And for the last section of the podcast, I kind of have some questions that are more related to you personally, kind of a fun set of questions. Are you ready to jump into this? Sounds dangerous. Let's do it. Uh, all right. So this first one is I doing research today. I saw your martial arts. I actually came across a few videos of you doing martial arts. I mean, my first thought, I was looking at you on the podcast, then martial arts. I'm like It's like the next Joe Rogan here. <laughs> Why don't you tell me a little bit about what you do with martial arts, how that's helped you with your career? Just kind of any thoughts around that. Sure. And by the way, I've grappled with Joe at UFC. Oh, really? So, Oh, yeah, yeah. So I had a pretty big fight team called the Armory. Still fighting today. Marlon Morea, Edson Barboza. Kurt Pellegrino, Armis Franca, Luis Kane, Matt Wyman. Wow. These were all guys who pretty much, other than Luis, were in the 155, 145 range. Joe, obviously, still is announcing. But back when you know we'd show up on a Tuesday in Vegas and stayed at all Saturday night fights because you needed to keep the fighters in a controlled environment, they're interesting characters. We would have training rooms and people would show up and roll, meaning you know grapple with each other. So I've got my black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I've got a third degree black belt in Aikido. And I also trained in Taekwondo when I first got in. I just love combat sports. They teach you who you are. And all combat sports are great. Don't get me wrong. But I would say the truest combat sports are wrestling and Brazilian jiu-jitsu. There's no way to hide in the truth in any of those when it comes to real combat. So they cause you to be introspective. They teach you that the experience is most important. Winning is not. They teach you humility. But also, you can balance out a huge ego as long as you can balance it with humility. And they're real-time problem-solving at the expense of taking a beating. So, like, there's a consequence. Like, you know, things never matter unless there's a consequence. If you ever think about that through life, when I see people do all kinds of training, I'm like, well, there's no consequence if you don't get it right. And so, you know, that's the best teacher is consequence. So, I think the martial arts, in particular, the true combat sport martial arts, Every single human being would be required to go through those in school for grades one through 12. The world would be a nicer, more generous, safer place because if you have confidence that you can defend yourself, you never need to be insecure. Therefore, start a fight. I love that. And also the jujitsu part of it is pretty incredible. I didn't realize you had gone that deep. I just saw a couple of videos and I realized you had the whole team. That's amazing. Yeah. So... In the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? I would probably say, let go and others do it better than you. I'm learning that one daily. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good one as you start to, you ever want to scale. What is one of the best or most worthwhile investments you've ever made? Sounds like jujitsu might make that list. Could be an investment of money, time, energy, etc. I would say... Gosh, that's a good one. There are so many things that come to mind. It's just a broad category, but the investment in fitness, white paper after white papers coming about showing that hard level resistance training fights off dementia. 
It also dramatically increases blood flow to the brain. I think I would be lost if I ever had a degradation in brain function. I'm 60 in a couple of months. Our bodies are the thing that carries around our brain. So I would say the investment in fitness and nutrition are the best investment longitudinally anybody can make. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what are the bad recommendations you hear in your profession or area of expertise? Social media should never replace the phone. Phone, phone, phone. And as I mentioned earlier, the phone is still the most important thing, but it's moved further down the activity chain, but it's still the thing that closes the deal. I just want to put that out there. But I think the objection to social media, because people think of Instagram and duck lips and you know little puppy videos on Facebook, but LinkedIn is a learning platform. And so developing your brand and demonstrating your subject matter expertise at scale gets more effective phone calls with you. So I think the biggest resistance is the fear of social as the emerging tool in search or staffing. Just to dig in, have you done anything with TikTok yet? Are you? Are you I have not. My team has brought it up to me a bunch of times. I'm sure there's something there, but I've got a limited number of ticks in the talk, you know, minutes in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it might be something eventually I may play around with, but right now I've not jumped into TikTok. <laughs> so we're still trying to figure it out. Yeah, I mean, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I was thinking, you know, TikTok's just for teenagers and, you know, it's a bunch of junk and much crap. And like most social media platforms, as it's evolved, I now have a great feed of like business tips and psychology and life best practices. I'm like, oh, this is actually, there's probably something there, but it's a whole other platform. And I know that that takes time and work. (laughs) I agree. I mean, we've got the resources to do it. Marco leads, you know, my marketing production teams, like we got to do TikTok. And then, you know, all I do is think about those silly challenges and that. (laughs) But then, see, I fall back into that old dude. Yeah. persona of, wow, that's duck lips and challenges. I'm like, no, yeah. it's not. So you got well, some. The funny part is I was talking about this with somebody the other day. I'm like, TikTok is really whatever you train the algorithm to be for you. <laughs> like, that's right. It can be an absolute pile of crap, but it can also be pretty good if you get it right. What is the book or books you've given most as a gift and why? I love Bob Cialdini's Influence. It's a must read book. He's out in Arizona. He's close to you. I think everybody needs to read Yuval Harari, his three books, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, Homo Deus, and what's the third one? I forget what it is. Sapiens. Yeah, Sapiens, right. So if you want to really get some really deep, cool thoughts, I would read those three books. All three have been gifts. And then Cialdini's influence in the business world and personal, I think Bob does an unbelievable job in there. Those are literally my top two recommendations. Like I've read Duval's books, all of them twice, and influence I, is required reading for the team. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> I've not had anybody nail it that tightly. Those are great recommendations. I uh, love those. I do like Jordan Peterson's latest book, 12 Lessons for Life. Okay. That's a good one. I haven't checked that out yet. How has a failure or apparent failure set you up for later success? Ooh, the best lessons appear there, right? So I've trained myself to think of optimal and less optimal outcomes. I usually don't say pass or foul. And that's a really important thing. A really good friend of mine, Tony Blauer, taught that to me. So I just have optimal or less than optimal outcomes. And I also keep in mind, there's only one worst day and one best day in your life and everything else is in between. <laughs> and I think it's really important to keep that in context because is this going to be important 36 hours from now? And if you can manage around that, and I don't mean apathetic and not pay attention to it, but it's important that we weight our wins and losses appropriately. 
we're never quite as good as we think we are, and we're never quite as bad as we think we are. And so I try not to, without being cute, say something was a failure. I'm just like, okay, that didn't work out how I thought. Why? And then is it worth learning from that? Yes. Is it worth trying it again, maybe in a different way? So that's how I process those less than optimal outcomes. I love that. Last question. What is an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love? Oh, God. <laughs> that you want to share on a podcast. Yeah, that I can share on a podcast. <laughs> the first one, you must have seen the tape rolling in my head, but I can't say that out loud. The, the weirdest thing that I like, shit, there's so many of them. One doesn't stand out. <laughs> You're stumping me here, and I don't want to just throw something out carelessly, but what is it that is really weird that I like that I can talk? Oh, yeah. And it came up this weekend or this past week when I was traveling, and it goes back to jujitsu. There was this very comfortable feeling that I used to get on the jujitsu mat that when you grapple in jujitsu and you have a gi on, your face is constantly being smushed. Yeah. Like, um, really, if you've ever wrestled, it's a pacifying, lovely feeling to get my face smushed. <laughs> I think that takes the cake. That's perfect. <laughs> so awesome. Is there anything else that you would like to share with our audience today? No, listen, we're in a very noble profession. So many people, when they ask what we do, some people try and make it sexy and wrap it up in a really fancy package. The staffing industry, no matter what part you play in, RPO, PERM, contract, I mean, we really change lives and you got to take it that serious. And what we're doing deserves us to really look at it and make it like the most amazing industry in the world. So I would just say, look, continue to rep our industry really well. I'm greatly appreciative of podcasts like this and, and you sharing what we do with everybody. So yeah, I just want to leave it with that. I'm very proud of and privileged to be able to work in this industry. Well, thank you so much, Joe. It's really a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I really enjoyed the conversation. Hope our audience did as well. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity and be well. Thanks for listening to The Staffing Show. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter at staffinghub.com to never miss an episode. Until next time.